I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Anne Pettifor and Ellie May O'Hagan. Um, Anne's a research fellow at City University and the director of the think tank Policy Research in Macroeconomics, or PRIME for short. Her books include The Real World Economic Outlook, her 2003 volume from Palgrave, which famously predicted the... Uh, the onset of the financial crisis, uh, followed by the coming first world debt crisis, the Green New Deal, and most recently the book we're, we're here to celebrate this evening, uh, The Production of Money, How to Break the Power of the Bankers, just out from Verso. Um, she'll be in conversation with Ellie May O'Hagan. Ellie's a freelance journalist, writes for The Guardian, as well as for The New York Times, The Independent, Foreign Policy, all over Twitter, all sorts of other joints. Um, it's um, a real pleasure to have the, the pair of them with us. Um, please join me in putting your hands together to welcome Anne Ellie. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, as you just said, I'm Ellie May O'Hagan. I'm really glad that I didn't have to do your biography because that was a much better job of the version yeah, I was going to do. But I will also say this about Anne, which um, <clears throat> hasn't been covered yet, which is Anne is also a badass feminist who puts her money where her mouth is when it comes to gender politics. So, so that's why I'm really, really excited to be here this evening to talk about um, the monetary system and um, feminism and to talk about whether is the monetary system a feminist issue. And I'm, I'm really glad to talk about this issue because um, I think the answer is yes. And I don't think we talk about it enough. So um, yeah, I'm really delighted to be here Thank with you, Anne. Thank so I think the way that we're going to start this is I've got a few questions that I'm going to to Anne and then um, just to kind of kick things off and we'll have a quick chat but if you're anything like me the only reason that you come to these events is so you can ask questions so that's just going to be a kind of a warm-up so that we can then throw out throw it out to you and you can ask and any questions you like about her um upcoming book which I am actually halfway through at the moment and it's I really recommend it it's if you haven't read it yet it's um it's really easy to read uh you don't have to have a kind of qualification in economics to read it. It's really simple to, to understand. And um, it's asking a lot of the big questions that I feel like we should have been asking for a long time now. So it's really, it's a really great addition to, um, to the conversation about the economy. So why did you write it? Why, why, why did you pick the subject and, and why now? 
Um, well, my background was in working on sovereign debt, the debts of the poorest countries, when we ran this big campaign, Jubilee 2000, to get the debt, about $100 billion of debt cancelled for about 30 countries. And after the end of that, I wanted to try and understand why it was that these countries had got into very severe levels of debt. Whereas before 1971, there was no debt. There was no financial crisis. Between 45 and 71, there were virtually no financial crises around the world. It was known, it's known even to the most neoclassical, neoliberal economist as the golden age in economics. Um, and I, you know, people used to say, well, they, they got into debt because of the oil price and all of that. And I just knew it wasn't right. And so I started, I was at the New Economics Foundation for three years. And I just just dug and dug and dug. And the more I understood about the international financial architecture and so on, the more I understood why these countries had become indebted, whereas before they hadn't been. And then as I dug even deeper, I really struggled with the whole idea of money and debt and where it came from and why it came and who was in, who was in charge, basically, of the money system. And then I think the thing that's really driven me is that that it's, it's a, a subject that is regarded as arcane when it isn't. You know, there's some aspects of the monetary system that are complicated, but on the whole, the concepts, the key concepts underpinning the monetary system are something that we can all understand. Um, and on the other hand, you know, I was so shocked after the financial crisis because, you know, the crisis happened. And first of all, all the neoliberal stroke orthodox economists did their stand. None of them had expected it. We, we had predicted it, but they hadn't expected it. And then those who were on the other side of the fence, if you like, the more progressive economists, didn't have an answer. You know? And the reason for that, I think, is that, first of all, I mean, I think there's a conspiracy to keep us all ignorant about what the bankers are up to. So you know, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but it does feel like a conspiracy that they can get away with blue murder and nobody writes about it and nobody understands it. So, for example, economic textbooks don't teach money, banks, or debt. It's just not in there. You just and if they do, they 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 teach a very and people good people like Paul Krugman argue that 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 banks are there. It's quite extraordinary. Banks are there to act as intermediaries between savers and borrowers. So you know you put your pennies in the bank, and then someone comes along and wants to borrow and borrows your pennies, and and the bank takes a fee for arranging this. Well, if that were the case. Why on earth did we have this massive overhang of debt, which was more than all the world's savings, right? And still, we still do have, you know. There's no link between the amount of debt there is and the savings, or it didn't seem to me to be that. Um, and that's as far as, for example, Paul Krugman goes in his macroeconomic textbook. So, so neither eco economic students or people working in the profession discuss and talk about this. And as for the rest of us, you know, we just have no clue. And I'm really struck at the moment by, by the kind of Trump and Brexit and all of that. And all of that is a reaction to, in my view, self-regulating markets in trade, in goods and services, which mean they dump stuff or they, you know, you, you lose your job or whatever, <coughs> and labor. But really, the thing that's causing the crises is the, is the self-regulating flows in capital, in capital mobility. But we don't see that on the whole. So we don't think it's a problem. We think immigrants are the problem, you know, and not, not money. But last, a couple of weeks ago, there was an amazing story in the Times about um, 
a little tea shop in Highcliff Castle, I think it's called, somewhere in Dorset. And this tea shop's been owned by a, a chap, uh, forgetting his name now, for 17 years, and he's run it, and the locals know it, and they're all very comfortable and happy there, they like it. And then the council decided to put it out to tender for all the reasons we know councils are short of money and so on. And um, this guy lost his business to a company based in Philadelphia that's worth about $40 billion, and that builds and maintains prisons and, prisons and canteens all over the world. You know, So this is an example of a little minnow in Dorset competing against this great, big, cap highly capitalized shark and losing. Of course, you know, you can't compete against that kind of money because he's going to come in and say, look, I'll cut the staff, I'll do this, that and the other and I'll put in some technology and it'll, you'll, make, you'll have cups of tea for far less or whatever. Or I'll charge twice as much for your, your fancy coffees or whatever. And, um, and so it's this, so that it means that, you know, he's going to lose his business, jobs are going to be lost. And the, the cafe may not, or the tea shop may not be what it was before. And we will blame probably immigrants or somebody else, but you know, we, nobody will have seen this vast company that has money and can move its money across the world without any hindrance. You know. And the thing about the difference between trade and labor and money is that if you want to move goods around, you know, there are barriers to that movement. It's not easy. You've got to pack them up. You've got to get them through shipping or whatever you do with them. You know, even if it's if you're on good trading relationships with your partners, there are still some barriers in just getting stuff out. If you're if you want to move labour, if labour wants to move, there are barriers to that. You know, and not just you know uh, border controls and all of that. There's also kind of emotional and cultural barriers to moving. There's no barrier to moving money. You, know, you can sit in Philadelphia and boom, your money moves across without hindrance. And so money has an absolute advantage over trade and labor and is very and uses that absolute advantage to do huge damage to trade and labor. And we don't see it. It's invisible to us on the whole. And that's my beef. But in particular, women don't. And women are not involved in this business. They just don't go near it. And... Um, and yet they are the victims of it, you know, so. Well, I can actually, I can really res uh, identify with a lot of what you're saying. It really resonates with me because I've just, um, we were actually just talking about this earlier. I've just come back from America where I did it. I went on a kind of research trip over, right. over the period of the inauguration. Yeah. And I, I definitely found exactly what you, you were talking about, which is that um, people feel that, that there's a whole system happening yeah. that, that, that they can't make any contact with. And that they're not, they don't have really any understanding of. Yeah. And they're they're resentful of it. Like the the thing that I found the most was not that people had suddenly become really racist and gone and voted for Trump. It was that a load of people had suddenly decided that they were they were just not going to bother voting yeah. because they didn't see that there was anything that they could right. make an impact on. Yeah. They felt that there was a whole system that they just weren't engaged with and they couldn't they couldn't influence in any way. Yeah. And they were sort of cynical and resentful about it. I actually met this one guy who said, I asked him, you know, did you vote? Who would you vote for? And he just said to me, I'm a working class black man. What difference is it going to make to my life who's in power? And it was just one of those things to say that I thought that's just such a good thing to say that I could like such a, such a sort of pick one and like to the point thing to say. Yeah. But I could never put it in an article because everyone would think I just made it up. It was just so, <laughs> yes. it was just so on the money. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's... So I think, you know, what... 
what I think is going on, and, and I, this is not original at all, is this great um, economist, political economist, uh, Karl Polanyi, who's written a great book called The Great Transformation. And he argued that what happens is people realize that their democratic institutions can't protect them from losing their job, <clears throat> from destroying their business, from the feeling of insecurity, from the fact their kids can't find a place to live, can't afford to go to university or whatever. And, and the government isn't protecting them. And, and, it, and it's true. The governments have been <laughs> just watching the Trump administration. It's unbelievable. Goldman Sachs cannot believe their luck. They're running the country. You know, this guy Gary Cohn, his name is C-O-H-N, is Trump's key economic advisor. And to, in today's Financial Times, we read that um, Goldman Sachs' shares have risen by 37% since his election. And they've now got $14 billion of cash, which they called excess cash, sort of slopping around in their vaults, right? And uh, so if I were that young black man, I would say, look, you know, the, you know it's not, my elected representatives are not running this country. My, it's been run by somebody else, and if I if I vote, it won't make any difference. And the, you know, so what we see here is a, a profound failure of democracy to protect citizens from these self-regulating markets. You know, and these self-regulating markets have become the system, have become the government. You know, the, the, the value of sterling is determined by young men on, in trading on trading desks in foreign exchange markets. Interest rates are determined by someone out there, you know. So, so by what what I what um, what is defined as private authority, you know, private markets are shaping our lives, deciding whether or not we have jobs, whether our kids get jobs, whether you know universities are affordable, whether our local authorities have finance and so on. And public authority has been hollowed out. We know, we know, Parliament no longer does anything meaningful, really. You know, in the old days, in my youth. Parliament was a place where MPs made decisions about how much money would go to the BBC or to broadcasting, how much would go to the NHS. And, and increasingly, those decisions have been taken away from parliamentarians. And the market, is, something called the market is deciding that. So why vote mm -hmm. if, if your government isn't the, governing you and something else is governing you? The trouble is we can't, it's not visible to people that, that we're being governed by these markets, essentially. So... You said something interesting there that I, I this is a, a, something I want to put to you. You said that uh, Sterling is decided by young men in trading. Ah, oh, yes. So, if you, I remember shortly after the financial crisis, there was a sudden wave of articles that came out that argued that um, if it had been Lehman sisters and not yeah. Lehman brothers, yeah. there wouldn't have been a financial crisis. If women had a greater role in the monetary system, yeah, then there wouldn't be a financial crisis. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that argument? Well, I think it's true. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, well, I think it could be true um, because I know there's lots of social science which shows that um, if you put a group of young men together, they they tend to be risk taking. They tend to behave, you know, <coughs> kind of crazy. Um, but that that effect is not seen in a group of women working together. So, um, so I think that's the case. But. I'm reading a book by a wonderful guy at the moment who lost Merrill Lynch something like $458 million in 2008 and was sacked. And he's, he's writing the story of what happened. He's wonderful. Alexa Stenforce, his name is. And it's clear that they too are victims, basically, that 
that you know they get bright young men to come in and and they teach them how to to play with these algorithms and all this, this stuff on on a computer and there's no economics behind it it's all simply you've got to move you've got to gamble on whether you know sterling will rise by a half a cent or four by half a cent and if you gamble on half a cent up and it and it blah then you will earn you know 30 million bucks for because we've put so much money into this for the company and so they're at this micro level and they're not conscious of the sort of if you like the macro picture and they're just doing what they've been told to do so what's tragic is that the guy who's been done for manipulating libor and that is one of the biggest financial crimes in history <coughs> ever to have occurred he was a, a trader, you know, and he and he he's being done over now for the, the bosses who got all the money, you know. Nobody's put them in jail, you know. So so while I'm quite sure that young men behave badly when they're in groups and take crazy risks, um, I also know that they've actually been herded in, you know, to do that, and that there are other forces at work that force them to do that. So you know, I'm not trying to let them off the hook but I, I don't want to you know these guys are really victims of a system they've done very well you know <laughs> very rich victims so I'm not asking for too much pity for them but <clears throat> they aren't the big bad guys you know and we've got to focus on what's really wrong <clears throat> and who's really in charge well if if um these young men are being sort of herded into a system that <clears throat> forces them to act a certain way yeah wouldn't that mean then that if there were more women, that if it was the system that was the problem, that, yeah. that if women went into it, then they then would also adopt this kind of... Yeah. Like, so maybe the issue is not men or women, women it's about masculine and feminine behaviours and that the monetary system awards what is considered to be masculine behaviours like being a risk, a risk taker, yeah. being a bit cocksure. Yeah. Well, the thing is that I think because that's what it how it operates is why women are not involved you know and in a sense what i really hope to get out from this book <clears throat> is that women get it, get the hang of what's going on and get in there really so we've absented ourselves you know we've i mean i think we've said oh that's for you know high powered academics or pinstripe suited gentlemen in the city or or young men it's not for me and I think women have to dirty their hands and get to understand this stuff <laughs> and take it over, you know. But having said that, you know, we've got to get the, the theory and the concepts and the ideas behind it right, too. So I don't think it's simply a behavioral thing. I think there's an architecture, there's a structure within which we operate. You know, I grew up in, in South Africa, and I grew up in, an, in the apartheid regime, and that's why structures are so important to me. And I could not not be a racist. I had to go on a whites-only bus. I had to sit on white-only benches. I was, you know, my life was structured into behaving in a certain way, right? And that taught me that actually um, we can have systems and architectures and structures which direct our behavior. And, and you know, what would happen is you focus on the white person sitting on the bench and not on why on earth is it structured in that way? And so I'd like us to be thinking about the structures and the architecture in order to be able to challenge the behavior. Um, and what do you think of uh, the announcement uh, recently that as a kind of protest against Trump and 
related forces, there's going to be an international women's strike on International Women's Day. Right. Which well, is... well, you know, when you, um, yeah, well, you mean a, a kind of, are they really going to stop working? Well, I, I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so, yeah. No, no, no I think that would be amazing. I have to tell you that I have spent a lot of my life going on marches mm. and fighting for women's rights and things. I've never been so thrilled as I was on the Women's March a couple of weeks ago, you know. And I went along, my daughter-in-law persuaded me to go, and I thought, oh, I bet, I bet they're all falling out with each other. <laughs> this is what I thought. Yeah. And I bet they're all going to be arguing. And it was amazing. It was amazing. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And then to see it happen all over the world and to see it replicated everywhere, mm makes me think, yeah, at last women are waking up to the fact that the way the guys are running the system is hugely destructive of us, our families, our children, whatever. We've got to do something about it, you know, and not stay out of the, out of the fray. Mm. I did feel, I was actually on the Women's March in Washington because I was there when this trip happened and then I felt it was a little, characterised a little bit unfairly by the press who sort of suggested that there was... I don't know that it was like very liberal and not very radical and there was, you know, yeah. some of the women who were sort of in minorities were kind of treated unfairly. And there was certainly, there was that element to it, but there was a lot of um, yay Hillary Clinton signs, which isn't yeah. really my yeah. politics. Yeah. Um, but there was also a very big radical edge to it in, yeah. in Washington. And, um, and what was wonderful was, is that, that, that somehow they could all be brought together in one place, you know, which yeah. the chaps haven't been able to do. The chaps are about dividing and ruling. Really. Yeah, and I thought that was, you know, I think a lot of radical groups in America went along and they pushed it to a more radical place. And I thought that was really exciting. Yeah. And the other thing I've, I've noticed about it was that, you know, I, I'd sort of gone to it expecting to feel cynical about it and to be, to, and not disliking how apolitical it, it was yeah. because a lot of the... So advertising for it was kind yeah. of, yay, let's just celebrate women rather than like, let's talk about politics. Yeah, yeah. Which is what I was much yeah. more interested in. But actually, I was sort of um, unexpectedly won over by just by the sheer, I mean, there's a million women in Washington. It was extraordinary. I mean, it, was, it was huge. And just the sheer amount of women who had never done any kind of activism before. Yeah. And who were there with their like, you know, mothers and daughters. Yeah. All, all together you know, travelled from across the country who would never normally consider doing something like this, who were out there protesting. Yeah. And that, it was very hard for me to watch that and feel like anything but positivity about it and kind of hope. Yeah. And, um, and I also think, you know, as you were saying about that they might go there and, and kind of people end, might end up having arguments, that when you bring people, a huge group of people together, they're, they're going to bring bad politics with them. They're going to bring arguments with them. And yeah. it's about navigating yeah. through that and trying to find... I think it's about leadership, leadership in the sense of, and holding together a group who are very... You know, there are clear reasons why all these women should stay, stand together. You know? But I have to say, you know, I went on the, um, the anti-Iraq march and that was also very impressive. It was very painful because there were so many people, we couldn't move and my feet froze. I remember, you know, standing absolutely still for a very long time. Too, <gasps> and yet, and yet, you know, the war went ahead. Mm -hmm. So it's about more than just the demonstration. It's about getting smart about you know, what's really going on. And I, I tell you what, the, the great parallel, the thing that inspires me is that when we started Jubilee 2000 in 94, we were on the roof of a, 
of a building at Christian Aid, and they said, oh, you've got this little charity setting up, uh, this little NGO. There is a shed on the roof which you can have, and we moved into the shed, which was made of corrugated plastic walls, which didn't quite come down to the ground. And we sat at our desks with our legs folded to mm. keep warm in the winter. We had nothing, right? And we worked out our analysis of why you had to cancel the debts. And we just, in, in fact, shared analysis and information and facts with a lot of people. And to my absolute astonishment, and to everybody else's astonishment, 100,000 people turned up to the G8 summit in Birmingham. And everybody said, you know, this is loads of money time. This is deep Thatcherism here. And why on earth do these people care? And the politicians weren't prepared. Blair wasn't prepared. You know, They weren't prepared for this turnout of people. So I, I, what I learned from that is that when people understand, when they get something, you know, we explain to them about multilateral debt, about bilateral debt, about commercial debt, about the relationships between the international financial architecture, how this had happened. <coughs> and once they got it, you didn't have to do anything. They mobilized themselves. They were so mad. They were so angry about it. And, and the politicians couldn't believe it. I mean, who on earth would think that 100,000 people would come out in order to cancel the deaths of some remote countries over there? You know, they, they weren't prepared. The Foreign Office treated us very badly because they weren't blah, blah. And, you know, but what that taught me was that when people get, get it, and they get mad, they act. And, and so it's not, for me, just enough to, to, to march. It's really important to get to understand the forces that we're playing with. And when you do, people, you know, in my optimistic way, I think, will organize. But I, yeah, I think, for me, I think to organize, but also to, to direct that anger towards something productive. Yeah. yeah. Now that's the key, and that's the key thing, you know. So we we had a goal: cancel the debt by a certain date. You know? And I mean, we need young people like you, Ellie, to to lead this new movement. Um, I love to be called young. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, that seems like a good time eh, to throw it out. So, does anybody have any questions or comments? Or hi. Okay. One of the things I was thinking about. What's in your name? I am Rose. Hi, um, Rose. Hi. Yeah. Um, in terms of the international women's strike because this happened in back in 1970 in new york and um i guess it also probably kind of came out of a there was a lot of like wages for housework type stuff yeah as, um and so one of the things is that i guess for lots of women it's really difficult to strike from their work because their work in the first place mm. is incredibly precarious so they risk yeah. a lot more than other women yeah. when they do strike um, so, I mean, that's one of my thoughts about yeah. um, what to do in, in those circumstances and what can we do about some um, kind of like a proper solidarity and um, yeah. support. And yeah. Do you well, want to take that one first? And then we okay, so the thing is, what I, what's so striking and actually scary about today is that in the night, you know, we, Similar things happened in the 30s. We had the big 29 financial crisis and huge response to it. But in the 20s and 30s, labor, admittedly male-dominated labor, was organized. But globalization has led to the deorganization of labor. So today, for example, I read about how um, Boeing has moved it, a plant from north, the north in the United States to the south. Why? Because in South Carolina, 
they're not unionized. And the workers voted against joining a union, right? And, and so international capital is now moving money into the southern United States, where there's weak um, organization. And the same applies, of course, to women. We don't have, we're not organized. And so, so capital, if you like, can chip away at our rights and, 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 and our incomes and our livelihoods. And, and, it's, and it's very precarious. And in fact, you know. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And there's so much celebration here of the fact that we now have 74% of the working population employed, but we're in part-time, insecure, zero-hour contract jobs. And, and those are very precarious, as you say. And we don't want to lose them because actually it's, it's not a lot of income because income's in, the income for those jobs is low. But we might lose that tiny, you know, that part-time job or that self... Or we might lose our, our self-employment. We may not be able to earn enough as self-employed. So I think that the struggle now is going to be much harder than it was when there were organisational frameworks in, the, in which women could work. You know. And we, do we have those? You know, is the Women's Institute the thing? What is the thing that, that would help us organise and, and give us strength because there's more than one of us involved and we're not you know, putting our precarious jobs at risk? Hi there. Um, Hi. And your name is? Mark. Mark, hi. Sorry, um, I worked in a previously in a high street bank right. and there the kind of gender makeup was 50-50 but very heavily skewed 80-20 to female in the administrative roles and then managerial and senior managerial mm. the flip side and whenever me and my boss who was female would try and kind of come up with ideas to change that we had to kibosh it because we couldn't talk about gender equality you had to couch it in very vague terms about diversity because it's too yeah. confrontational. So yeah. I guess my question is, what can macroeconomic monetary policy do to something that is a very cultural, individual type issue? Right, a good question. What it could do is empower women. I mean, one of the problems with our economic system is that women are the ones that on the whole don't have money or have less money or have lower wages or lower incomes. And, um, and the framework uh, isn't just sexism and gender bias. It's actually a framework of financial imbalances, really, whereby you know, 
if you're a man, you get paid more than you would a woman in, in very similar professions. So in a sense, for me, the answer is changes in behavior on the, on the, on the shop floor. But more importantly, are the sort of legal structures which um, regulate employers and enforce them to do that. Now, the problem is that increasingly, regulation is seen as a very unfashionable thing. And, you know, deregulation is what all of our politicians think we should do. You know, in order to attract foreign investors, we've got to cut all these, this red tape. And, and that's the problem. If the, if the economy was, if, if, if economic relationships were so structured, if the government insisted if you like, that it was legally, um, it was illegal to pay people um, different salaries, um, then you would begin to see some movement. But at the moment, it, and if the, if the government followed up on that, but it, 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 that's not the case. So, so these imbalances exist not just for cultural reasons, but for me, for the way in which our economy and our, legis our legislation is structured, and how many women are there in Parliament fighting for this and trying to get it through. Now, we, there's been some progress in equal pay, in, and, and that was triggered by women pushing for equal pay laws, but it's not nearly enough. And the imbalances are still very great. Hi there. Um, can you hear me? Yes, mm -hmm. I can, but what's your name? I'm Naomi. Um, Naomi, hi. Yeah, hi. I was a financial journalist, and now I'm a data analyst. You're um, now a what? A data analyst looking at right. the market. Yeah. Um, how much do you think the uh, legislation that's coming in that's going to force employers to uh, describe their pay gap, how much do you think that's going to help? And do you think we'll ever have legislation that uh, has equal paternity to maternity leave and therefore eliminates the inevitable question that families have when they have a child, which is, how much poorer will we be if he takes the time off? Yeah. yeah. You need to know, I'm not an employment person. I'm not an employment economist. But um, I mean, it's clear that the problem is how much leverage do we have over companies? Now, that company that took over the tea shop in uh, Dorset um, is not based here. So they don't have to pay taxes here. And they don't have to necessarily, um, I mean, they will have to obey our regulations and our laws. But it's going to be really hard to go after them if they don't, basically. So I want to draw you back again to the way the monetary system works, which makes it then very hard for that kind of um, legislation to have, to have teeth. Because, because these guys slip away across the border overnight, you know, and it's easy for them to evade that kind of regulation. So... While governments probably don't do enough, by allowing capital mobility, they're actually disabling themselves from bringing about the changes that we'd like to see. Can I ask a very quick follow-up question? Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of international trade unions. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that could fly? <laughs> yeah. So the key thing is this, that... Um, in a democracy in particular, you need borders to make policy. So if you have a policy on pensions or a policy on sexism in the workplace or, um, or if you have a criminal justice policy, for example, you need borders to be able to enforce that or taxation policies for that matter. Um, and beyond your borders, they cannot be enforced. Um, you know, South African can't come here and claim a pension. Equally, you can't, the British government can't tax them if they're in South Africa. So, 
So borders are really important um, to policy making and especially to democratic policy making because you can get a grip on your politicians. But, you know, you can't get a grip on those things out there, really. Now, I think international trade unions would be wonderful as a way of coordinating and um, cooperating. But we have got international trade unions. But in a sense, those big corporations are way beyond that because there's no way to pin them down. You know, they've got to be pinned down to the, the uh, taxation policies of this country. And, but how do you do that with Apple? or with Amazon, or with Starbucks, you know. They're not here. They're, they, of course they're based in the Panama or somewhere else, you know. And it's, so therefore, as long as we're sort of focusing on that and, and not realizing that, that it's this capital mobility <coughs> which makes it so difficult to make policy and to affect that policy, to, uh, to enforce it, um, so long you know, will these relationships not really work? But of course, we've got to have, inter you know, I believe in international cooperation for, with everybody. One of the striking things about the way the Conservative government ran economic policy was that they don't believe in international coordination. You know, George Osborne was very happy to go launch G8 summits and say, nice to meet you guys and come home again. Whereas in the past, governments used to work together to stabilize the economy if it if it uh, became unstable. Now the idea is just leave it to something called market forces. They'll, that'll be, you know, George Osborne really believes that leave it to capital markets and everything will be good. So I'm a great fan of international cooperation and coordination, but it's very hard to enforce policies if, if there aren't national boundaries, if you like, to the enforcement of those policies. Is that okay? Sorry, yeah, I'm yeah, not sharing. <laughs> You mentioned Carl Polanyi and his, yeah. um, his critique of market fundamentalism. Yeah. Um, I'm just really wondering whether we can make any of the changes that we're talking about here unless we have a radically different economic system in place that doesn't focus on growth and um, isn't all about the individual and self-interest. Because yeah. I, think, I think without that, None yeah. of these other change these other changes are like tinkering with the, the deck chairs on the Titanic, yeah. really. Yeah. Sorry, what was your name? Um Charles. Charles. Um no, you're right. I mean so Carl Polanyi wrote in the nineteen twenties and the thirties, and his most important book he wrote in the in nineteen forty four, um, and argued that um you know it was self regulating market <clears throat> markets which sort of that were detached from democracies in society, to which society reacted. And, and you can see that happening in the US and here now. There's a counter movement saying, those guys are out there, they're running the show, and I have no control, and I'm going to resist that. And so we've seen this. And he argued that the counter movement would not be progressive. It could be, as we see now, very, very unpleasant, actually, and nationalistic and right-wing and so on, and fascist even. Um, but you know, what, what it comes out of his book as well is that it took a world war to sort that out, really. Um, it wasn't until 1944 that economists and governments led by dear old President Roosevelt, you know, came together to say, we must never let this happen again. But before, I mean, not, well, until about 1933, uh, very little was done. And then even after 1933, you had, if you like, um, the stabilization and, and 
of the economy in the United States and the restoration of democracy, if you like. Um, the first thing that Roosevelt did, he was, he was inaugurated on the Saturday. On the Monday morning, he called the bankers in and said, close it down. And furthermore, we are, you know, we're now, the bankers are no longer running the show. And, and so he, he led, he provided leadership, if you like. Um, and that began to change. And here in Britain, John Maynard Keynes provided leadership to the Bank of England and also to the Treasury. But in Europe, you know, markets, private authority, authority still continued to govern, if you like, and we got fascism. So, you know, we have a choice. We could go for the kind of progressive, and in my view, progressive ideas that we saw um, in Roosevelt post-1933, post or we could head the way that Germany and other countries went. And, you know, I'm really sometimes quite pessimistic about what's going to happen, because precisely because of this widespread ignorance of how the monetary system works. And so the population can't change a system if they can't see it, you know, if it's, if it's not transparent to them, and it isn't transparent to them. And so no one can challenge it. Um, and, and there's widespread ignorance, as I said, both amongst economists as well as about by the population. And so it's very hard to think you could have radical policies or you can have change until, until that education actually, you know, and who knows, it may happen, but it could go the other way as well. Hi, I'm Alex. Uh, you talked about money running policy. And I wondered if you were thinking of any specific examples, like I can think of the care sector where you've got uh, sort of venture capitalists taking over children's homes en masse, or you can think about lobo loans to local authorities where it's yeah. um, where it's very high interest loan potentially. So, for example, Newham Council is currently paying eighty percent of what they get in on council tax on interest yeah. on a bad loan they signed up to. Um, yeah. So there's that kind of thing which doesn't. That I wasn't really aware of until recently, but are there any specific examples you were thinking of where money's determined policy rather than politicians? Well, I think the world is structured like that. <laughs> you know, um, and we haven't started on money yet, and I'm quite relieved because <laughs> we need a lot of time to go through it. But the point is, the economy is made up of credits and debits, really. And money is credits and debits <coughs> and assets and liabilities. Money isn't coins and notes. That's just a representation of money, which is, as Joseph Schumpeter argued, just a promise to pay. Okay. Um, and if you allow that monetary system to get out of control, then the bankers who manage if you like, these promises to pay between us, to monetize all the promises. And if you say that they can charge any price for it, which is the rate of interest, <coughs> the system goes completely awry, basically. The way I like to think about it is if you think about a village and a woman who's a good hairdresser and, and, and another woman who's a good at thatching roofs, and they want to be able to to you know, share each other's services. And there's a chief of the village that keeps an eye on, on, on the stability of the village and says, right, um, you're a hairdresser. You can cut her hair, and she'll thatch your roof afterwards. And the hairdresser does the, the cutting, and then the promise is made. But then the promise has to be fulfilled. When is she going to thatch the roof of my, my hut? 
the, the role of the regulator, if you like, is the, or the chief of the village or the high priest, is to say, hang on, you've all both made these commitments, um, and now um, you've got to uphold them. Now, if you take the chief away from, from the village and you leave it up to people to just mess around with their promises, it's going to be captured, if you like, by someone who doesn't care about managing the stability of the village. And that's what's happened to the financial system. Now, it's run by creditors. And they're the ones who have built up a lot of tokens after doing a lot of hairdressing or a lot of thatching. They've built up tokens. And they're taking these tokens, or they're stealing the pension pot of the, of the hairdresser. And they're building up these tokens. And then they're using that for speculation in the capital markets. Now, the, the global economy is now structured um, in a way to, to, to favor creditors over debtors. So in the case of Newham Council, um, you know, back in 4571 under the Bretton Woods era, those very high rates of interest would not have been, uh, would not have been allowed. And public authority oversaw the, rate, the rates of interest on lending across the spectrum of loans. It wasn't just left to the guy making the loan to decide, really. Um, and so as a result, the world is now run by creditors. It's run by people who lend money and charge a lot of money. And the central bank worries about the base rate, which is the Bank of England rate. But that's the rate that bankers borrow from each other. But when it comes to Newham, you know, it'll be some great hedge fund or capital private equity firm who will lend money, but at a rate that they fancy charging, really. Every, every single interest rate is decided individually, depending on the risk of the borrower. And so we find that interest rates in real terms are higher than they were in the last period. The Bank of England's got a really interesting piece on that today on their underground site. And, um, and this makes debt unpayable for Newham. You know, New, Newham now has to, I don't know, uh, charge you higher rent, uh, has to get more car parking tickets or whatever they're doing. They des or sell off all their, their housing in order to collect some money in order to repay that. And these guys who are doing all the lending up here are more than happy that for this time because the government's saying nothing to do with me, Gov. You know? And so this may be just be happening to Newham, but it's actually happening to everybody. I don't know anybody here who borrows money at 0.25%, which is what the banks borrow at. I know most people, you know, with a mortgage are paying four or five percent. I know that if you've got an overdraft, you're paying twenty-five percent, right? And the bank's borrowing at 0.25 percent, and and so everyone thinks interest rates are low because the bank rate is low, but actually, for Newham and for for entrepreneurs or for someone who's taking a risk, it's very high. Anyway, so so we're now in a world where the creditors are running the world now. This is what I learned with the, the Jubilee 2000 campaign was, you know, that the big creditors, which was the IMF, the World Bank, all the big countries lending to poor countries, they were dictating terms all the time. There was no system for balancing the interests of both, really. And what they want more than anything are very high rates of interest, like, you know, I'll lend you money, but I want 15% for that or 8 or 7 or 9% for that. Um, and they, they don't want in def inflation. The thing they hate more than anything else in the world is inflation, because inflation erodes the value of the debt. It, it becomes smaller. So 
what we've lived through since the crisis is an era of effectively deflation, not actual deflation, but deflationary pressure. And when you have deflation, the value of the debt and the cost of the interest rises secretly, silently, without you knowing it, relative to incomes and prices, right? When I first took out a mortgage in the 1970s, um, I didn't pay back the full amount because we had, we had inflation. And that inflation eroded the value of my mortgage. I paid back less than I'd borrowed. And the bankers hated that, you know, the mortgage lenders hated that. Now it's the reverse, really. Deflation is what they love. And we, you know, <laughs> I go around hearing people, including on the left, saying it's a very good thing. George Osborne says it's a very good thing, deflation. It's not if you're a debtor, and most of us are debtors. So for Newham, you know, there's the income that they're, they're able to collect or whatever it is with which to, has been cut by the government, grants have been cut and so on, but the value of the debt is rising in the interest rate, which is why they end up paying whatever 80% of, the, I don't know what the number is, but it's probably very high as a share of their budget to creditors. But, you know, we all sit around and say that's, that's the world as it is, you know, that's not do anything about it. Um, we've only got five minutes, so I'm going to take a couple, just two at once, if there are two. There's one, I can see gentlemen there, and then a woman at the back, just there. So maybe if we just take two at once, and then I'll throw it back to Al. Hi, yeah, my name is Zaf. Um, so it's just a follow-up point on the inflation-deflation uh, topic. So obviously, <laughs> I think most central banks set a target of inflation of 2% officially. Yeah. Um, wouldn't you say that, in at least in recent years, there's been a, a fear of deflation by the central banks? So ever since the financial crisis due to regulations, um, interest rates have been cut, the ECB have, yeah. have got quantitative easing, the US yeah, Fed yeah. did quantitative easing, the Bank of England did quantitative easing. They're trying as hard as they can to encourage banks to lend, yeah. but because the banks were regulated and were burnt by the financial, financial crisis, regulated yeah. for good reason, that effect isn't being passed on to the banks and it's not being passed on to the consumer. Yeah. So actually the banks are too scared to lend to individuals, businesses who are actually worthy of credit, yeah. regardless of what the yeah. central banks are doing. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, so the banks have been, you know, what's been extraordinary is that the central banks are pumping something like $500 billion a quarter into the financial system and prices haven't risen. Okay. And that is bizarre. But it's for the reasons you've outlined, which is that the banks, in my view, effectively bust still, most of them, without central bank largesse and without very low interest rates, they'd be bust. They're all, I think, all, all these global banks are effectively nationalized banks because they, they would not have survived without all that taxpayer-backed support. Um, but there's another issue, which, and you're quite right, that banks are nervous to, send, to lend because their, their balance sheets are so risky, uh, so creaky. But equally, people aren't willing to borrow. And again, there's this myth of low interest rates, which is that, ah, oh, you know, I'm an SME. We've had this very bizarre thing happen since the crisis, which is just beginning to change, which is that we invented the banking system for the purpose of lending money into the real economy. And what's happened since the crisis is the real economy has lent money to the banks. And this has happened in particular in relation to SMEs, little, little small, which we all say are startups, are really important for creating jobs and so on. They haven't borrowed from the banks for two reasons. One, 
the interest rates that the banks are charging them when they assess them in, on an individual basis too high and exceed their rate of profit. And therefore, they're not going to be able to repay it. Secondly, there ain't customers coming through the door. And so when you don't have demand at that end, when the, the economy is weak, when people's incomes are falling in real terms and they don't go shopping, the shopkeeper is really careful about taking out a loan. And so, but, but we've got a complete blind spot for that. We're blaming productivity and the supply side issues and so on and so forth. Um, but really, we haven't actually fixed the banks or restructured the banks. We've lent them, we've given them huge amounts of money with no terms and conditions. RBS can do as it likes, you know, it's had massive taxpayer back support, but it can float around and pay its shareholders and nobody says a word. And at the same time, we haven't fixed the economy. Um, we're, we're creating low paid, insecure jobs with people not earning enough to be able to afford a house and blah, blah. So the economy is still, you know, um, comatose essentially, despite all these. In and the injection of $500 billion a quarter just goes into the banks. It doesn't, of course, it doesn't go into the, to the real economy. And then there was the lady at the back and then, um, I had about 15 different questions and managed not to ask any of them, but my, sorry, my name's Nikki, um, but like just all of this feels very frustrating and upsetting and it's, it's I think it's quite easy for us all to feel quite um, powerless and I just wonder if there's one thing that you would suggest that an average person can do yeah. that can have some small but meaningful impact to counteract this horrible situation, basically. Yeah, well, that's really a good question this, at this stage because I agree, yeah, people want to be motivated. For me, I, you know, I, there isn't, unfortunately, because the, the monetary system is such an intangible thing, it's really hard. It's, you know, if it were fair trade, you know, you could go and buy the coffee beans, for goodness sake. But, but this is different. So for me, it is about education. And, and I go back to the experience of Jubilee 2000. You know, I loved the fact that we, we talked to people about the international financial architecture and about the debt and, and multilateral debt and all of that and about the net present value of debt, which is really quite a difficult concept to get your head around. And the Treasury came to, to us and said, what the hell is going on here? Gordon Brown had to hire two staff to deal with the correspondence. And he said, you know, I'm getting letters on pink paper with little roses in the corner saying, dear sir, <laughs> we know that, you know, when you calculated Uganda's debt, you didn't take blah. He said, how the hell do they know about this, right? And that woman in her house, sitting at her kitchen table, writing on pink letter-headed paper on, and with roses in the corner, was empowered because she now understood something and, and she acted. I mean, she, we suggested that she act in that way and I don't have a simple suggestion for you right now. But it was her empowerment that actually meant 100,000 people turned up and a massive movement, which was global, was generated and a hundred billion dollars of debt for 30 countries at you know in nominal terms was written off so um, you know I, I, I just think the thing you have to do is you've got to determine to learn to educate yourself and I hate to say this but I think you should read the Financial Times <laughs> because 
Um, believe it or not, the whole story gets spelled out there. And, and, you know, they write quite well. There's a lot of stuff that's arcane and obscure. But why shouldn't you read the FT? Why only read about culture and art and lifestyle stuff? In, you know, why not read about this too and, and, and just get more knowledgeable? Because I am convinced that education is hugely empowering and will bring about change. <laughs> well, okay. I have to say the first time I read the FT, I was like, kind of thought, I was like, is this Marxist? And then they were like, and I was like, oh no, they, they think all this is good. <laughs> I thought they were like exposing some scandal. And then well, I was like, oh no, they're all saying this approvingly. Okay. <laughs> well, you've got to do your analysis yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, that seems like the perfect note to end on. So thank you all so much for coming and thank you, Anne. That was Pleasure. really, really enlightening. And read the book, it's really good. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.